Welcome to Unprofessional and Unprepared, our lighthearted weekly conversation about sports, life, fatherhood, and whatever else comes up with no script and no preparation. I'm your host, Jason Gerber, and this week, we look back at seven solid days of baseball for the Cleveland Indians, a roller coasting weekend at the Masters, and an upcoming release from the Gone Too Soon Purple One. I'm here tonight with two of the best ever. Smiling Chuck Rambaldo is back. Hey, what's happening, Gerbs? Phil Danko is here as well. Hey, Gerbs. Thanks for having me. Phil, since yes. the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, the CDC recommended restaurants avoid using or sharing items that are reusable, such as menus, condiments, and any other food containers. That, combined with many eateries reverting to takeout-only orders where condiment packets would be included, has resulted in a shortage of ketchup packets. In fact, the price for individual ketchup packets has increased by 13% during that time. The world is currently facing a ketchup shortage. Phil, what is more important right now? Keeping the current pace of vaccinations or ramping up production of ketchup? Well, clearly it's keeping the current pace of vaccination. However, this is great news. <laughs> selfishly, selfishly, I have a stockpile of ketchup packets because I've been getting to-go orders through this entire pandemic and we never break into the ketchup packets. Is this like Bitcoin now? Can I really, can I really I think, get some? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I think you can. Nice. I think for sure you've got, um, you are currently invested in ketchup and it seems it. like it might be a really good time for you to be you know, selling your ketchup packets. I'm on it. Great start to the kids' college <laughs> funds. Right. Really good source of uh, second income for you, man. <laughs> good news, kids. You can go to college. <laughs> <laughs> on my ketchup money. <laughs> All right, fellas, let's jump into segment one. We'll do our at-home segment and start with talking Cleveland Indians baseball. All in all, a really good week for the tribe. They are five and one since our last show. They've hit nine home runs in the last four games. Throughout the week it was solid to real good pitching from top to bottom in the rotation and in the bullpen the record is now at five and three for the season so chuck which player on the indians had a good week this past week offensively i would say reyes i wish we could play or he could play the tigers for all 160 plus games because um, <laughs> i thought he would be frustrating early on but he's looked phenomenal that home run he hit to like deep center. I don't think I've seen a home run that deep since like Tommy used to do that pretty often. Yeah. So yeah. I think he's had a great week and I hope he stays at least that hot for at least until some other guys kind of catch up to what he's doing, but he's looked great. Did you say that he's been playing Fran nominal? I, I may have. <laughs> oh, I hope you did. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. Denko, what about you? Who had a good week for the tribe? Certainly I agree with, with Franimal, but uh, Perez kind of surprised all of us offensively. Um, I think I heard something during yesterday's game where he was taking every at bat at least five and six pitches into counts and he hit some long balls. He got, he got some clutch hits and, and more importantly, he actually walked as well. So he wasn't just striking out at the end of the lineup. So I, I think while his stats probably didn't line up to Fran Mills, I, I think he surprised us in this first week. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I had Fran Mill as well. And I also had Savali. In the week, he had two wins. He had 14.2 innings pitched. He only allowed five hits and opponent batting average. It was about 111. He played really well. And Perez, man, any offense we can get from Perez is a gift. That's fantastic, especially because not everybody in the lineup is hitting. So Chuck, who had a bad week for the Indians this week? Gollum or whatever the center. I think <laughs> I think he's hitting zero for the he season. He still is. Yep. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure. No batting he's average yet. He's hitting zero. Uh, I would say he had a bad week. And God, the pitcher, what is it? Whitgren? No, mm. he chopped that ERA down to like 16 or 18. So he had a pretty decent outing. But he actually got it down all the way to 13.5 today. <laughs> All right. He was one of mine as well. What about you, Phil? I'd go with Ben Gamble. I, I still don't, I, I don't know why he's on the team, to be honest. I, I guess because he can catch fly balls and he's done it before professionally. Other than that, uh, someone hit the ball today so weakly that the Tigers couldn't actually defend the hit. <laughs> and and was, it, was it Luplo or Bowers? <laughs> one of those two? It might, it might have been. It might have been Bowers. I think it was Bowers. So I, I would put him on that list as well. Hamilton mentioned it on the radio that. He hit the ball so weakly they they couldn't actually defend the play properly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a line drive in the scorebook, buddy. <laughs> I actually went with the Rosario brothers. 
going into today's game, they were a combined five for 32 this week. Eddie actually had a pretty good game today. And I'll tell you what, Ahmed Rosario played two straight games in center field, I think Friday and Saturday night, without an error. If he can keep doing that, Ben Gamble probably will not be with this team for very long. I suppose if Bowers keeps hitting balls so weakly in the infield that nobody can play them, he also will not be on the team for very long. Moving off of last week and looking ahead to next week, the competition definitely picks up. They've got three with the White Sox starting Monday night and then three with the Cincinnati Reds. Tristan McKenzie is getting the start on Monday night. It'll be his first start of the season. Phil, what are you looking forward to this week for the Tribe? They are in first place, so I'd like them to get through this week and uh, maintain that standing. So if that means, I think I think the White Sox series might be a four-game series and the Reds is a three-game series in terms of the White Sox. It's a stat department thing, so yeah, maybe I, I really tried not to prepare too much, but I, I accidentally <laughs> heard that. So if we could split, if it's a four-game series, if we could split with the White Sox and then you know maybe win the series down in Cincinnati over the weekend, that would be a really good week for the Tribe at this point. I think along the same lines, you're, you're playing a better competition this week and i read the recap of the game today and it was like indians beat miggy-less tigers like that's <laughs> that's your right like that's their superstar um, i'm interested to see if the pitching staff does better against white Sox and reds and i'm almost interested to see if tyler naquin continues like how i don't know if you guys yeah. have seen how yeah. great he's oh, playing no, he's killing the ball so, right like, now i'm like super happy for that guy but it'll, it'll be like sour grapes if Gollum is starting and hits zero <laughs> for the series and and he continues to rip the ball so i'm i would like to see the pitching do really well this next two series so are we sure we want to go with Gollum and not unfrozen caveman center fielder <laughs> I'm fine with unfrozen caveman. I'm fine with Gallon. Whatever the whatever the group goes with, um, I'm fine with. I'm excited to see McKenzie pitch Monday night. Um, he he's only pitched I think about an inning and a half or so in relief, but he looked electric in that inning and a half. He looked really really good. So I'm looking forward to seeing him and seeing what he can do with a full game to start. Although I imagine he's probably only pitching about five innings in that game. I don't think they're going to let him go as deep in the game as some of the other starters go. We'll see. Hopefully it's a, it's another good week. And at the end of the week, they're still in first place. That would be great. Did you guys know the Cavs season is still going on? They lost a nail biter Saturday night, 135 to 115 to the Raptors. Uh, they're 19 and 33. They're 16 and a half games out of the first seed in the East. And it's looking less and less likely that they're going to be able to get that top seed or even make the playoffs. <laughs> to be fair... Uh, they've be been they've been snake bit by injuries. Larry Nance had a mysterious illness last week, and he lost twenty pounds in a week. And they, I guess, he's back now, but that seems strange. How much of this record do you think we can put on not having the full squad there? A little bit. Um, okay. Maybe maybe that would be worth another handful of wins. And 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 part of that, honestly could be that this is a young team and they haven't had the opportunity to play together and learn how to play together because of all the the injuries. The game, the nail biter you had mentioned from yesterday or the day before, they gave up 87 points in one half yeah. of basketball. <laughs> that's not good defense, no matter who's out there, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. So I don't know. Did I don't they know at that, least score 86? Uh, no, I, I think they scored. I mean, they, they were probably scoring all right. I think they scored in the fifties, <laughs> you, yeah. you know, that was good for a half. So I don't know if we could blame it that, you know, the team hasn't been together. It's part of it, but I still think this team would be on the outside looking in even to that last playoff spot. Chuck, do you think they should keep playing these games or just rest up for next season? I think they should keep playing them because the, they're a super young team. They don't have a lot of veteran leadership. At least Kevin Love, I guess, played a little bit last week. And Delhi came back from like his 80th concussion. And I know Delhi can't score anymore, but I Man, think... Man, I, you know, I know. I keep reading about how exciting it's going to be that Delhi comes back. What are you no. talking about? Yeah, no. <laughs> that excited. guy is the yeah. key. We're, yeah. uh, other than his mom, who's excited about that? <laughs> <laughs> he is a veteran point guard uh and he might be able to help some of those younger dudes along a little bit it's it's they have a, such a young roster I, I i don't want them to stop playing i think whether they lose every game for the rest of the season i just think they need to continue to play together especially man like feels like defensively how do you give up 87 points you know like I, I thought this would be a pretty decent defensive team but they blow uh and that's okay because they're they're super young and and sometimes it's exciting to watch them but i haven't watched them i think in a good month so fuck it why not let them play it out <laughs> isn't isn't this a situation now where 
you want them to play every game because you want to get these young guys minutes and you want to, you know, just continue to in, improve their court awareness with each other or what have you. But the best thing that could happen to this Cavs team is to play every game and lose every game. Right. To just increase your chances of getting yet another young star right but they've already won 19 games i think the way the way the nba works i i don't i don't know if they're in line right now for like a top three pick anymore well, like, they are, changed are, the are, they, are they not rotten enough to get <laughs> like one of the top three or four players i don't know i haven't looked at admittedly the bottom end of the rankings in the east or, or the west i, I just wanted to see how close we were to getting the first seed um and we're not it makes sense right now to keep playing games and just losing them all and trying to add another young stud guy in the draft isn't it weird that we don't hold the Cavs accountable like you want them to lose and continue to play but when we talk about the indians putting an infielder in the outfield we're so critical of that yeah. you know like <laughs> like the Cavs are just kind of there and they're the only team that's won a championship in our city in the last yeah. 40 plus years but it's, it's we'd weird. probably feel a lot different about their decisions if lebron was still on the team yeah, right. If LeBron was on the team and they only had 19 wins, I think we'd all be pretty upset right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, as long as we're talking about drafts, why don't we talk about the upcoming one, the Cleveland Browns NFL draft coming up at the end of this month. And last week we talked about first round picks. So this week I thought we'd talk about late round picks. And so I went through and pulled some names of some guys who were drafted pretty late by the Browns and had pretty good careers. First one, uh, Brian Sipe. 1972 was drafted in the 13th round. I can't believe they had 13 yeah, rounds. Wow. Round. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of drafting. Brian Seib, NFL MVP. Ernest Biner, 1984, 10th round. Reggie Langhorn, 1985, 7th round. Doug Deacon, 1971, 6th round. What do you think the trick is to finding productive and really good players like that late in the NFL draft? The flip of the coin, I think. I, I don't know. Like I don't know if there's a trick. I think... At that point in the draft, you know, maybe you're looking at thin positions, right? So where do, where do we need some depth? You look at a guy that, you know, in, in Doug Deacon's case, like, okay, he plays every down, he's a hard worker, you know, that kind of thing. Like, is that the kind of person you want on this team? And you could coach him up in the next few years. And who knows, maybe you get a, a diamond in the rough, so to speak, in the, uh, in the sixth or seventh round. I, I can't imagine what professional football teams draft boards look like to where they're, they've got that thing all, all the way through seven rounds where, right. you know, all these players and who, who could fall there or, or what have you. I don't know if there's one trick. I think at, at that point, it's w what kind of team are we building? What do we need? And let's, let's pick someone in that position because if he makes the team great, if not, no big deal. Okay. Well, you're about to see it happen right now. Chuck, <laughs> predict the players, the Browns will draft in round six, seven, and eight this year. Just give us the names, man. I'm sure you've got a draft board prepared, right? Yeah. Yes, I have scouts all over the country <laughs> who are looking at Division II uh, and Division Three athletes. Uh, God, I think in six or seven, I think you see them take uh, a quarterback maybe. I, I don't. I read some article that they they like. I don't know if he's from Stanford, maybe, but they think he might be a late round pick just to kind of shore up a backup backup position. I, I didn't actually expect you to come up with anybody. <laughs> I know, but I am somewhat prepared for that. I, I read I read some close. like Brown's blog, and they said that they like some kid from Stanford. What do you think they should be looking for this year? late in the draft like not names obviously because right. none of us know the, this shit well enough to know who actually um, would be available then or who they would like but overall looking at the team we have wh what do you think they're going to be looking for in the later rounds of the draft probably a senior offensive lineman who could play multiple positions that's you know they, they seem to do really well with finding guys who could play guard or tackle and, and plug them in somewhere so i think that's what they'd look for in a later round some guy who's a little bit older and has played tackle and guard throughout college. I think that's a really good idea, Chuck. And we need to, we need to send that off to the Browns. Um, <laughs> I think late in the round, I agree with that. Like, you know, linemen on either side of the ball that have played three or four years of college football. Uh, Cause you need depth at those positions. They get beat up so much in what will now be a 17 game season. Maybe. And I hope this doesn't happen, but maybe you take a flyer in the sixth or seventh round on a kicker. I can't stand when teams draft kickers. I feel like, 
you don't have to waste a draft pick on a kicker. I'd rather take a backup guard and maybe he turns into something. But, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if they did something like that this year. I was thinking kicker too. And I have the same feeling that I hated having to pick a kicker in fantasy football. Mm-hmm. I don't think you should have to pick him in real life either. You sh- you just find him. But we, we have a kicker who might be better at hitting the uprights than kicking field goals. And so maybe it's something to think about. But I do like the idea of trying to build depth on the offensive line after this we're going to have two shows before the draft so we'll dig in a little bit deeper about what they're actually going to do at the top of the draft and you know what needs they really need to fill but i think it's fun to kind of look at some of those late round guys and see that over the years they actually found some really good players late in the draft that were really productive and on some of the best teams we ever saw play for the browns Why don't we wrap up this segment, take our first break, and we'll come back and go out on the road. This episode of Unprofessional and Unprepared is brought to you by spring. It's that magical time of year again, when the icy cold blanket of snow finally clears away, birds are chirping, the sun is out, and Mother Nature is about to remind us that she does not give a, well, you know. Time to shake the winter rust off that golf game? Sounds good, but make sure you bring all your clothes to the course because the sun that was there when you put your clubs in the car might be chased away by sleet, hail, or grapple before you even tee off. Mother Nature does not care about fixing your slice. Magical time of year? Really? When the sun is out in the morning but in a blink is traded for ominous clouds, gale force winds, and every imaginable type of rain? That's right, Mother Nature does not care that you are vitamin D deficient. Looks like a beautiful sunny day through the window. Step outside. Oh, wait, it's only 27 degrees out there. Thanks a lot, Mother Nature, you bitter old shrew. Wait, is it? Is it snowing? What the shit? It's the middle of April. Are you fifth? How is it? I really... Spring. I can't believe I fall for this every year. Welcome back, fellas, to our second segment. We'll head out on the road, and we will start with one of the coolest weeks of the entire sports year. This past week was Masters Week. It is a unique and special tournament on the golf schedule. It is the only major that's played at the same course every year. And so you have these historic pin placements, like on 16 or on 18 or 12, where on Sunday, they set the pin in the same place every year. And so you get to watch these highlights of guys who have won it from years past, and they're all taking that same shot on 16, and they're all you've seen the ball move to it the same way, uh, and a lot of tournaments are decided there. It's just a fun thing to watch. Uh, it was a good tournament that turned great on Saturday after a long rain delay. Hideki Matsuyama uh, went nuts at the end of the round on Saturday and just pulled ahead of a group of about four or five guys who were about four strokes behind coming into Sunday. And then on Sunday, as will happen at the Masters, all the guys who were close kind of lost a step here or there. Matsuyama, who was great most of the day, and he was able to hold on when he started to kind of let it go at the end. Xander Shoffley probably had the most interesting round of the day. Absolutely came apart on three, four, and five. Played terrible. Looked like he was done. Then he turns around. He makes this amazing run. At one point, he went through Amen Corner which is uh, 11, 12, and 13, and had birdies on all of them, I think. He had four birdies in the row on the back nine, and then on 16, hit it into the water, and that's where he loses the tournament, basically. Uh, But for a minute, he looked like he was about to take back momentum. And Phil, this isn't a team sport. This is just one guy out there essentially by himself trying to figure out how to win a tournament. And what do you think it takes for a guy who loses it at the beginning to then be able to fight back and maybe almost get a shot to win the thing? Huge balls. Um, (laughs) Seriously. He's kind of a smallish guy, too. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm not checking. Uh, any any of these individual sports where I don't know I want to I don't want to put a percentage on it, but so much of that game happens between your ears, right? I mean, it is. Yes. All these guys have amazing golf skills. The difference is, is what happens between your ears. I I watched, I watched a decent amount of it this weekend and the lead was in doubt right till the end all day today. It wasn't. And then all of a sudden it was because these guys feel the pressure and 
how you pull yourself out of a, a, a string of, of bad holes, I have no idea. And, and we've seen the opposite, right? Where guys just come unraveled and, oh my gosh, now they're throwing yeah. clubs into the water. And, you know, yeah. just, it, it's no good. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's interesting. I, I kept watching uh, guys on 12 because, like you mentioned, that, that pin placement's the same on Sunday every year for the Masters. Yeah. And they, of course, they put it all the way to the right. And they're like, here, hit it at the stick because you're going to end up in the water. Like every yeah. time, hit it at the stick. Even the professionals, like you can tell, like, all right, I'm just, I'm going to do this. Like, I can do this. I'm going to, I'm going to hit it at the stick. And it, it wasn't working. But I, I don't want to dismiss the importance of the caddy in this situation, potentially get that guy refocused because so much of it at that point in your head. Uh, you had, you had a run of two or three bad holes. All right. We we're right here. We're still in it. Let's regroup. And here's how we're going to attack these next couple holes or however you're going to do it. Chuck, the 12th is a 155 yard par three. What club are you using? A pitching wedge. <laughs> sure. Okay. Okay. Tiger. <laughs> rip it and uh, rip it. Rip 155. Um, I would like a, I, maybe, well, I don't know. Like I, I play shitty courses. So I would say <laughs> typically maybe I'd try a seven here or an eight, but there I might as well pick it up and try to throw it. I explained it to my wife today. It's like, they play it here every year. And she's like, why that's stupid. I said the history, it's beautiful. Look at this. Yeah. Like half of the beauty of that tournament is the course itself. It's, it's stunningly gorgeous. I don't know, you know, like what Phil's talking about, I think you're on an island as a golfer, whether your caddy's coaching you or not. And I would assume these guys can just turn it off if they have a bad shot or if they have a bad hole, they just move on to the and they yeah. forget about it. Like I assume like baseball players do if they have a bad inning or a bad at bat. Um, I can't imagine that. It always terrifies me to watch. You know, I love uh, the history of it. So I, I like seeing Gary Player who still looks phenomenal for his age and those guys come out and, and hit that drive it's yeah, great I, yeah i am terrified that one of these dudes is just gonna worm burn one into the, the gallery there i can't imagine that that kind of pressure yeah for those dudes as a show when these guys are playing at that high of a level it, it's amazing to me like you're saying the pin placement's the same and the people make the same mistakes every year like you you have 60 years of televised whole approaches that these guys could study and they still make mistakes. It's my favorite golf tournament to watch just because how pretty that course looks. Having worked on a golf course uh, for one summer and it was the shittiest job I ever had. Um, <laughs> it was the worst job I ever, and I had a lot of shitty jobs. But that, You that's worked in I, waste, the, what was I, the I worked waste at, plant, right? I know. Like, yeah. That was, a, that, that was a good gig compared water to working treatment. on a wow. water yeah. treatment that's facility. Right. Quite literally a shitty yeah. job. Yeah. Less <laughs> shitty than that was, yeah, the, it was, it was a lot harder to cut tea banks with a push mower at an angle and weed eat. Like it was the shittiest job I ever, and it started at five 30 in the morning. That's probably why. Yeah. That's bad. really bad. That's you probably be up bad. early. Yeah. Uh, I like what you, what you're saying about the way the course looked because there were so many fewer fans there this year. They couldn't have like the normal amount instead of looking like a massive golf tournament. It looked like guys on a golf course. And for the first time, I really felt like, gosh, you can really see what Augusta looks like. And I think they were using drones more to cover some of the holes and stuff like that. I watched pretty much every day of it. And I thought it, the course looked amazing the entire time. DeChambeau watch. <laughs> Chucky's boy, never in contention. And in fact, his best finish at the Masters was when he was an amateur in 2016. Since then, he's never cracked the top 25. He finished 46th today. Why does Bryson DeChambeau struggle at the Masters? Is it A, he putts with his arms too straight? <laughs> B, he just has a face you want to punch? Or C, Augusta is not a course you can just muscle through and his short game is good enough for most courses, but not good enough for Augusta? Personally, I would say B, <laughs> but the right answer is C. It's, it's not a course you can just muscle up and try to manhandle. And that's mostly his game. It made me happy to see him today at plus five or whatever it was. I think that's where he finished at plus five or something. Plus like five he finished. Yep. B as on a personal level, he's got the most punchable face on the tour, but it, <laughs> it, yeah, it's C like you, you just can't try to whip out your huge dong and just manhandle that course. And I think the counter argument to that is that's how Tiger did it the first few times he won. But the difference is, is that Tiger has always had an amazing short game and has, for the most of his career, been a really good putter, too. It's just different. What lessons do you think you're going to be able to apply to the 2021 COSAR Cup? 
if there is a par three with water anywhere near it, I'm going to have one of you guys run up to the green and take the stick out of the hole so I can't see it. And I'm just going to hit to the left or right or whatever makes sense. That's, that's my take home <laughs> lesson of this year. And if we happen to play at Augusta, I'm set. <laughs> oh God, that's never going to happen. <laughs> there is no chance they let us anywhere near that course. Well, thanks for talking some masters with me, guys. I think it was, it was a fun tournament to watch and congratulations to Matsuyama for being the first Japanese player in the history of the tournament to win the masters. And it's always a lot of fun to watch, but let's spend a little bit more time talking the NFL draft quarterback is always the biggest deal and the biggest talk of the draft. But just a couple months ago, we were talking about an NFL that was full of buzz for the possibility of multiple big name quarterbacks moving around. Uh, and the idea that we're going to see an unprecedented movement of big name quarterbacks. In the end, all we've seen is the Stafford Goff move, uh, Wentz, and then Sam Darnold uh, being traded for draft picks. It looks like Deshaun Watson is staying put, although that story has taken such a weird turn that's hard to even put football into it anymore. Dak Prescott signed his deal. Uh, Russell Wilson ends up staying put. The 49ers have traded up in the draft, said that they're trading up to get a quarterback, but they still think they're going to keep Jimmy G. Do you buy that? And do you think we're going to see any quarterback movement in the league before the draft? I don't think there's going to be any movement. I think you said it as delicately as possible. If the Deshaun Watson stuff didn't happen, I think we might have saw way more movement. Uh, if he moves, maybe you saw other guys moving. Um, but uh, who are the 49ers drafting up to take? You know, I have a, a friend who's a huge Niner fan. He's all excited. He thinks they're going to take Mac Jones or the, the guy from Alabama. Yeah. But, like, is, yeah. That, is that a sexy pick at number three? Is he better than Jimmy Garoppolo? I don't, I have no idea. So I, I think you'll see that run really quickly. But I know like the kid from BYU and there's like another guy. I don't even know who he is from a smaller school who seems to be like climbing up draft boards as a quarterback. Man, like the more I try not to read about Deshaun Watson, the more disgusting that story becomes. And now it sounds like he's just trying to pay off everybody who's filed suit against him. I think if that would never happen, you would have saw him move. And maybe you saw Russell Wilson move because everybody kind of copycats it. If somebody gets out, he wants out too. Yeah. Um, I think three is an exciting pick. I, that's probably the pick I'm most excited to see. And out of the first top 10 picks, like what, what are the Niners going to do? Are they really going to take a quarterback from Alabama who I don't think all that great. I mean, he's good, but is he all that? Is he better than Jimmy G? I don't know. Yeah, it's strange how the quarterbacks can jump from what you saw during the season to during the pre-draft time. I don't know. Do we spend any time talking about Mac Jones and what's his name? Zach Wilson being the two best college quarterbacks last year? No, man. It was the dude from Clemson and, and the dude from the Buckeyes, and that was it. Why didn't we see more quarterbacks move was it really just because the Watson thing takes a turn that nobody saw coming and that stops the dominoes from falling everywhere? Well, I kind of think we saw all the moves we were going to see minus the Deshaun Watson move. And, and to Chuck's point, perhaps if Watson got moved, another team would have pulled the trigger on something similar. The big names at the quarterback position, you know, it felt like there was about to be a ton of quarterback movement, but it felt that way because we were talking about Deshaun Watson and we were, you know, we were talking about potentially Dak Prescott and, and these kind of things. It's a coach and quarterback league. Like I, the 49ers are a perfect example. Could they have traded Jimmy Garoppolo already and picked up some more draft picks or picked up another skill position or what have you perhaps, but you've got a known commodity that can win at the NFL level, getting rid of that. We know what that feels like, right? In Cleveland, yeah. you can you can set yourself forward for a decade of futility at that position. You know, whether, whether they traded up to get another quarterback or not, I, you know, who knows? I, I think the Sam Darnold case is pretty interesting because he was he was drafted, what, third, second or third in the 18 draft. Mayfield went one and he went two, maybe two or three. Um, Some uh, definitely top five still. I mean, they were they were well, both drafted really high. Yeah. I, I remember pre-draft. It was the Browns were looking at like it was Darnold. You know, that was the guy I think it was Darnold and Rosen were the guys they were you know, yeah. projected to pick and the Mayfield pick came out of nowhere. So, you know, I don't know if teams are looking at that thinking, all right, we're going to draft a quarterback in the top five because we have that 
pick this year. And if it doesn't work out in the next two or three years, we're just going to move on. And that's okay. Where in the past, it was all about, all right, we picked this guy in the top five. We're going to invest a lot of time into making sure we got that pick right. Yeah, it's interesting because I think there was that stat kind of rolling around out there this week that something like in the last like five years, the only quarterback drafted in the first round that is still with his team now after Darnold moved was Baker. The draft is such a crapshoot for quarterbacks that it was probably crazy for us ever to think we were going to see a lot of these big name guys moving because like Phil's saying, like once you've got them, it's just crazy to let them go because then you're just back into the draft them, try them out for two years. If he sucks, okay, the whole team sucks now. So we're back at the top of the draft and we get to do the whole thing over again. That's not a fun cycle to be on. And all this makes me very nervous for not getting Baker extended long-term right away <laughs> because I don't ever want to be back in one of the, I don't want to be back in one of these conversations anytime soon where we're talking about who the quarterback is going to be. Touch on the NBA really quick. Move on from our NFL talk. A-Rod is buying an NBA team. Uh, from what I can tell with a lot of somebody else's money, but nonetheless, A-Rod <laughs> yeah. is buying the team. So A-Rod, I think has been approved by the league to buy the Timberwolves and the Lynx, which is the Minnesota WNBA franchise. What I've read so far, I think it's still unclear whether A-Rod is going to be in charge of strength and conditioning or ethics. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that I, I wish that I had like uh like the sound effect like doom doom <laughs> the drum beat. Can we edit uh, that in there? <laughs> not quite to that level yet, but we are starting to see professional athletes buying into ownerships of these teams. Um LeBron recent recently purchased a small piece of the Red Sox. He also owns an interest in a Liverpool football club, one of the European soccer teams. I don't follow that well enough to know which one or whether that's important or not. Phil, what do you think is going to happen to pro sports leagues when the athletes start buying the teams? You know, as a minority owner in in these situations, I, I think we'll see more and more of it. Like what A-Rod's doing, what LeBron's doing these kind of things. It's really difficult to become the majority owner of these professional teams that are all worth billions of dollars now. Right. Michael Jordan is an exception. Who in the athletic world is going to amass the kind of wealth as Michael Jordan had through his career and through his endorsements and those kind of things? LeBron's potential. I think, yeah. Right, yeah. Actually, LeBron and A-Rod make a whole bunch of sense because Le yeah. like A-Rod is apparently a, a really wealthy property management guy, owns like a huge company that manages commercial and residential properties all up and down the East Coast. And so he's got you know a fair amount of wealth that comes from something other than baseball and not just like endorsement money, not like another 50 million from doing endorsements. He's got real money out there. So it kind of makes sense that him and LeBron are the guys yeah. who are doing it it's not going to be a ton of these guys in the situation. It's, it's the people like LeBron who kind of fall in the footsteps of Michael Jordan, where they've got money outside of their, their actual profession uh, left and right. And then people like A-Rod who have, you know, found other avenues to make money and have been successful at it. Can you guys name other professional athletes that have done that kind of thing? It's, it's hard. I think. Uh, Shaq has Shaq is a good example. That, and that's Shaq. what I was, yeah, that yeah. was going to be my next question. Chuck is, is this something that we're going to see more in the next 10 or 15 years? I think so because guys are making an ungodly amount of money outside of the sport. Well, at least upper tier guys are making unbelievable amounts of money and it serves two purposes, right? You can make a rod the, the face then I guess of Minnesota Timberwolves and because like doesn't Jeter own part of the Marlins or doesn't he? Well, I think he's the, the like the GM or something like that. Yeah. yeah, but I think you're what you're saying is sounds like Magic Johnson with yeah. the Dodgers, right? Yeah. Right. So like these guys, you know, they own whatever it is, even if it's five percent of a team, it's an ungodly amount of money on your return in perpetuity until they <laughs> sell it, and then you right. cash out an even more amount of money. Right. It's a smart move for some of these guys who are really good businessmen, and A-Rod is one of them. I think LeBron, once he's done, will probably be at that Jordan-y level. You know, the guys in Space Jam now, and he's extremely, all these, except A-Rod, all of them are extremely likable. That That's the one thing that like. <laughs> all these guys are really likable. So it's not, you know, like this is like, these are guys who own a piece, glad hand, gigantic corporate dollars for their stadium, for their suites. You know, they're not, not, it's not like they're a mascot or anything, but it just makes more sense. These guys have so much more money now than they did 20 years ago that what, what do they do with it? They put it in the bank. Do they play the stock market a little? Like they need major investments where they know 
the return will always be there unless you own the Indians. Apparently they're always <laughs> making money. Like you always make money owning a sports franchise, no matter if you own one or five or 40%. This is a change that comes from the fact that especially in the NBA, the salaries have gone so far through the ceiling and are only going to go higher as the league expands internationally. And as these TV deals keep getting re-upped for billions and billions and billions more, like TV deals are never getting cheaper, never going to go down. That money's just going to keep going up. And so you start to see guys like Jordan and A-Rod and LeBron that are a rare level of athlete and celebrity who can amass the money to do this. But I think eventually you're going to start seeing more guys doing it. And I think 25 years from now, it might not be that uncommon to see guys transitioning from the league into ownership positions and then slowly but surely moving that up to the point where they get to be majority owners like Jordan. Owners, in my opinion, classically throughout the history of sports have taken advantage of the players. All of a sudden you start putting players into those positions. I don't know. Either you get the player becomes an owner and then his attitude changes on how players should be treated and how money should be split, or it becomes a more equitable thing for players. I think it's interesting to see more and more of these guys um, starting to get involved. Fellas, why don't we take one last break, do our final segment, we'll head off the field. Unprofessional and Unprepared is brought to you by the JG21 Diet and Lifestyle System. Tom Brady's unprecedented run to his seventh title once again highlighted his abilities, poise, and the unique TB12 diet that continues to keep him looking and playing like he is in his mid-20s. But not everyone is Tom Brady, and not everyone is looking for a no-sugar, no-fun diet. That's why I invented the JG21 Diet and Lifestyle System designed specifically for mediocrity. Feel like drinking that beer? Go ahead! In fact, have a few more if you want. Just make sure tomorrow you do some sit-ups or walk your dog or something. Pizza looking delicious? Go ahead and have a couple extra slices. But work in a salad here or there and try to go for a run this week. Want to spend the whole day working out or watching games and eating wings? I say, who's playing and can we get some delivery? Just, you know, don't spend every day on the couch in your favorite sweats. Limit that to just a couple days a week. Bottom line, not all guys are looking to reverse age like Tom Brady. For those guys, the JG21 Diet and Lifestyle System is the perfect low-commitment, low-results plan. JG21, when you don't need to be Tom Brady, but you don't want to be garbage. Welcome back, fellas, to our final segment. We go off the field and unfortunately start with some sad news. Earlier last week, DMX passed away. He was 50 years old, and I'll be honest, it actually surprised me that he was that old. DMX stat line, 1998 was his first album, It's Dark and Hell is Hot. It debuted at number one. He had four other albums that came out after that that also debuted at number one. He won three Grammys. His IMDb page also has 58 acting credits on it. He is the guy who was central to the tail end of the 90s hip-hop scene through the early 2000s and 2010s, I guess. Scale of 1 to 10, 1 being ready to die, 10 being you gotta believe, which was Marky Mark's second album. (laughs) He had a second album? (laughs) I I purchased it at full price. (laughs) So, scale of 1 to 10, 1 being ready to die, 10 being you gotta believe. How good was DMX? So ready to die is big and that's so one is the best rating you can get in this scale i just want to i want to make sure i'm prepared for your scale <laughs> yeah <laughs> not that i needed to know that given that marky mark's <laughs> second album was your 10 <laughs> um dmx i'm gonna put him at a three he actually released two albums in 98 so his first two albums came out when we were still in college and you know the the party up in here got play at every place you would go to um, yeah oh yeah but i you know i had his first two albums and there were some good tracks on it I don't know if, if this is a, a an unpopular take or not, but I, I think what DMX did throughout his career is he never sold out. Like he he just kind of this is who I am and this is what I'm about. And his music was about the fact that uh, here's a guy that had been incarcerated several times and struggled in life like many people do, and what he drew upon to write his music. 
and at the same time could produce things that became like anthems to every party and soundtracks to Fast and the Furious and all these other kind of things. I don't think he has been rated historically as high as he should be. So I'm going to put him at a three. Okay. Chuck, what about you? I think a three is dead on for him. We've all listened to rapper hip hop for a very long time. And it's super rare that a guy with the subject matter that he had was able to cross over so easily mm-hmm. that everybody knew at least some DMX songs. What sporting event doesn't play, you know, whatever the up and here song is that Phil was talking about. You can go yeah. to a stadium yeah. and you'll hear that song for 30 years. His place in hip hop, to me, it's like he has one of the most distinguishable voices in that genre forever and ever. There's like, Chuck D, you always know his voice. DMX, it's the same thing. Anytime you hear him, you know it's him. And he had a a body of work very early on that was really unparalleled then. Like if you go back, I don't know, it stands up as well as Biggie stuff or Tupac stuff or whatever, but uh, there was no hotter rapper than that dude for probably three or four years. And I listened to, like, it was never really my favorite, but it's undeniable. There's like, you listen to that first album, whether it was Rough Riders Anthem or Stop Being Greedy or What These Bitches Want. And it's it's like, you know, the, like I know these songs forever. Uh, so I, I never think he got his proper due for helping at that time when, when hip hop basically took over mainstream pop music. That's where hits were coming out of was hip hop. And he never got the credit he truly deserved. I'm sure he made an ungodly amount of money. So that's fine. You know, you got the money instead of the credit. But he was really integral in introducing a very gritty, rugged sound to the mainstream. I'm nowhere near the hip hop fan or historian that, that you guys are never really was like a huge DMX fan. But to me, this is the guy that kind of straddled that era of hip hop that, that we started listening to, you know, it was Dre, it was Snoop, it was tribe called quest. It even of course, Wu-Tang and DMX is kind of that last that last real big name that I can think of in that era before we start moving to an age of hip hop, that to me is the songs become about, this is how much money I have. These are how many women I have. These are my cars. This is, these are the things I'm going to rap about. It's, it seems to me that that's still what's going on. And DMX was more in the vein of the guys that we grew up with who were out there and who were actually saying something. And I, I don't remember a guy that came after him that was obviously as mainstream as he was that was still doing that. Top 50 years old is really way too young for anybody to be going and sad that, that it happened. And, um, but certainly a guy that had a huge impact on the music industry for a decade, at least. Staying in that music vein, Prince's estate announced this week that they would be releasing a posthumous album. Uh, It was an album that he recorded in 2010 that was never released. It's called Welcome to America with the number two. So apparently Bieber helped him come up with the title. (laughs) It is described as powerful, creative statements that document Prince's concerns, hopes, and visions for a shifting society, presciently foreshadowing an era of political division, disinformation, and a renewed fight for racial justice. Uh, you can stream Welcome to America right now. I did. I'll be honest. I'm a huge Prince fan, but sometimes there's a reason albums don't get released. Uh, what do you think about posthumous, posthumous? What do you think about albums being released after the artist has passed <laughs> away? <laughs> I put it into two categories. So I think you're you're dead on. There's, there's a reason a lot of these albums did not get released. Um, Prince is a, is a really good example he is a lot like Neil Young to where Neil Young could basically put out an album every three months if he wanted. Like basically he wrote a song and he wrote, and that's a new album. And that's what Prince did for kind of like a long time after he fought like record labels and sold it on his own. So he has an ungodly amount of work probably in a vault, much like Tupac had, right? Like so yeah. Tupac has 40 albums after he died. And there's, there's a reason that they're not that good, at least in my opinion. I'm not checking for that new Prince album, man. Like, and I like Prince. That family, that estates, uh, they're they're trying to open up his home as like a, like kind of like Michael Jackson's place where people can tour it. I, I think they're trying to make his brand stronger now that he's moved on uh, in in death. But I I don't know. I can't think of the last good song Prince really released, even when he was on a major label in the live. So I'm not trying to listen to something that's now 11 years old. The examples that Chuck brought up are are perfect. I mean, there's a reason these tracks didn't make it 
onto albums when these performers were alive and what 12 tracks make up this next album, right? You, you know, they get cut, they get buried, they're B-side or C-side. Um, I don't know that I'm going to rush off to, to the listen to it. This is 11 years later. So these tracks weren't good enough 11, 12, 13 years ago, whenever his last album came out, you know, it'd be different if, if someone passed away, unfortunately, in the middle of recording like a major album, like, all right, they've got 90% of it done and we've got to finish these last couple tracks. That's, that's completely different. This is stuff that is set around in that vault, so to speak, for more than a decade. So yeah, not, not super excited to listen to it. I'm going to check it out just because it's Prince and just because I'm interested in, in hearing what it's going to be like, but I don't think I'm going to get super excited about it. You guys ever see the Chappelle show skit with Prince playing basketball against Eddie Murphy's brother? Yes, yes. sir. You guys <laughs> yes. know that that's like a hundred percent true. Yeah. Yes. That yeah. Prince could ball and yeah. he played a basket, a pickup basketball game with those guys wearing like four inch spike boots or something like that. Yeah. Blouses versus blouses. <laughs> blouses versus there is, if you like YouTube it, I don't know what it was, but he's like actually performing at a concert and they roll out like a legit 10 foot hoop. And while he's playing guitar, he kind of just throws it down and starts draining shots from all over the stage. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. So, don't judge a book athlete. by its cover, man. <laughs> Uh, right. I love the fact that that dude was a guy who could ball. Let's go ahead and move on. We'll talk about Tommy Burke's weight loss. Tommy was busy tonight, so he couldn't be on the show, but I did speak with him. This week, he recorded his first goose egg. Mm. He stayed at 35. In his text message to me this afternoon, he basically blamed the Easter bunny. He said that he <laughs> ate a lot on Easter. <laughs> I think it's really great that he's keeping up with this, even if he has a week like this where the results aren't what he's looking for, and that he really is now finally getting a chance to monetize the success he's having with his weight loss. So I'm just wondering when you guys are going to be signing up for Sweat into the 90s with Tom Burke and Tony Little. Immediately Borrow. after this podcast. <laughs> I didn't know that existed. I Signed me up. It's brand new. <laughs> Fellas, what does Tommy Burke need to hear after recording his first zero week in this weight loss process. This is not even a step backwards. What he needs to hear is, you know, I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, he's lost 35 pounds up to this point in a matter of months. That's a huge number. The weekly number won't matter as much as where he's at three months, at six months, at nine months, 12 months going forward. Um, so a, a week where, okay, we didn't see the pounds come off on the scale, uh, not a big deal. As long as you still had a pretty good week in terms of activity, in terms of diet, I'm glad he blamed the Easter bunny and not our live pod recording at my house where we uh, ate a bunch of food and drank a bunch of drinks. <laughs> there may have been a mention, yeah, there may right, have been right, a mention, right. but I feel like it's on the Easter bunny, not yeah. a... So I think, you know, it's, it's okay. You're, you're going to have weeks where there isn't a weight loss. You're, you might have weeks where it goes in the opposite direction, but overall the, the, the big picture here is he's, he's lost 35 pounds and that weight will continue to come off as long as he keeps the habits that he's already taken on in, in focus. I think 35 is a huge number. And obviously Phil spoke very eloquently um, about you're now past like the first week and then the first month it's, it becomes a bigger picture and a larger goal. And, and to me, it just, if he keeps being active now, like that the weather's getting better. So hopefully he can do a little more stuff outside. And I know Tommy's up to 150. What a f***ing asshole. Like I see 150 now. I'm like, mother fucker. I gotta do 25 more now to keep up with him. So I'm still I'm like, push -ups. You're talking yeah. about he's doing yeah. up to 150 a day. And I thought we were, I thought we were nuts going with adding one push-up for every tribe win and right. then streak. what the hell <laughs> tommy keep up the good work man don't worry about one week uh phil and chuck are 100 percent right there's a bigger picture here man and just keep kind of grinding through it for our final word tonight guys i would like to pass on our best get well wishes from the show to the head of marketing for unprofessional and unprepared who is recovering from an emergency appendectomy over the weekend. In addition to running the show's Insta, as you guys may know, Tammy Gerber is also my wife. She had her surgery yesterday. She came home last night from the hospital. She is doing pretty well and is as comfortable as possible, I think, after being stabbed three times, essentially, in her abdomen. But we obviously pass on our best well wishes, all of our love, Please get well soon, baby. I barely know how to cook anymore, and I ran out of clean socks two days ago. <laughs> Fellas, with that, we are out of time. 
I am out of questions for now. Have a great week and let's get together and do this again real soon. All right. All right. I think I read that part of the, uh, since the draft here in Cleveland, part of the draft day, the three days of the draft festivities is a, like a punt pass and kick contest on Cleveland Browns field. So I'm cool. pretty sure it's just their way to see if they can sign a kicker off the streets, right? Like, <laughs> like that's what they're going to do. Like, Holy shit. Look at this guy. He kicked at oh. Toledo for three years. He just showed up drunk and just put him through the upright. That's the, it's the Sign Marky Mark guy. movie. Yeah, Remember right, the one right. we played for the Eagles, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I love Vince this. Papali. Yeah. That's yeah. Papali. That's a yeah, great movie. Papali, man. I watched that a whole bunch of times. Oh, Natty Light Chuck. <laughs> yeah, man. All right. <laughs> yeah, her, uh, Whitney's brother was up yesterday. It's his birthday, and I haven't drank beer in a while. I'm like, I'm just going to get Natty Light, and he didn't have any, so it was good. <laughs> <laughs> we had one beer, and we did a few shots of Jameson and Bullet. And I fell asleep on the couch at like 11. I'm a real party animal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good grief. How old is he? He's 24. 24? Yeah, I think so. 24, 25. Jeez. But that's not the super tall one, right? That's no, that one? one's 19. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. God, they could both be my sons. <laughs> <laughs> Just age-wise. I mean, I don't know yeah. the family that well. <laughs> that would Just be age-wise. weird. Yeah, that yeah. would be weird, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know. laughs> So the, the dangerous album cover if I, was like the statue of Michael Jackson, right? Like, wasn't that the cover? That was that history. No. Oh, okay. That was history. Um, the dangerous it's one. It looks like, like a mask a, or something like that with a bunch yeah, of like yeah, jewels yeah. on it and stuff. Oh, okay. I remember the time was on that. That's right. Yes. That's a good album, man. Because uh, if I remember correctly, like Teddy Riley and those guys produced most of that stuff. So it had a bunch of hits on it. Oof. It was a good album in 1991, man. Yeah, yeah. Jam was on that. Jam, yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah, <laughs> Michael Jordan, Macaulay Culkin video. Yeah, yeah. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you such good friends with Macaulay Culkin, man? <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> uh, ask, ask Chappelle what he thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man.